good morning. I hope you're doing well. Welcome in the auditorium. Those who are sitting in overflow today and, of course, all of our campuses. Uh, so glad and worshiping online. Um, man, the last couple of weeks I've had an opportunity during the week to travel to a couple of the other campuses to do some teaching uh, on, a, on a night and have a barbecue and kind of thing. And, man, it's so wonderful to see the other folks that worship and call alive their home and uh, have, have fellowship with them. We laughed so hard. We got to meet some awesome people. One guy I met, he's been part of that church for 82 years. 82 years. Can you imagine how many terrible sermons? <laughs> Just since I've been here that he's had to sit through for 82 years and, and that's such a sweet fellowship. And so I just kind of wanted to remind everybody that Alive is a whole lot bigger reach than just wherever you are currently worshiping right now. And uh, there's some awesome, awesome people that are part of this community. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your incredible gift of community. Thank you for these beautiful, beautiful people we get to do life with. Thank you for the high honor, Lord, we have of of knowing one another and, um, man, of truly kind of having that uh, koinonia, that Greek fellowship, if you will, of, of you being a tie that binds all of our hearts together. Even if we don't know each other's name or even if we do, you're still the tie. And how wonderful it's been over the last couple of weeks to meet different parts of the body and to celebrate uh, what you're doing. So, Lord, uh, we actually come here in this moment in time to to hear from you, um, to be part of that fellowship and, and to let it to grow more deeper, more intimate. And so hide me in your cross and let us hear just from you over the next few moments we ask in your name. Amen. So uh, we kind of have been trying to define this cultural moment that we're in right now. And uh, we spent some time last week, actually a good bit of time, sort of belaboring the point that we're in this cultural moment and, and what's going on in this moment. And we've called it this season of static. It's this season where it's difficult to know who's leading and where we're going. It's like, where, what does tomorrow look like would be another way to say, yeah, we're sort of in this weird season. This point in history seems to be defined as undefined. There's no real clear understanding. And there are many contributing factors that people have identified that are part of this moment in time and, 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 and why it's a challenge, if you will, to tune into clarity during this season. The pandemic, of course, was one of those things that we could say, yeah, that, that made it difficult. Or um, cultural change that's happening, um, political polarization that's going on. These are all things that have kind of contributed to it. The rise of social media has been something that's contributed to this cultural moment where it seems static. But it's not just those things that are making this all happen. What's, what's really freaking everybody out is the breakneck speed at which change is happening. Like, we, we find out things on Monday we didn't even know existed last Friday. But by Monday, we're all worked up and bothered by them, and by Friday, they'll be done, and we'll go on to something else. And then so it happens all the time, and it's happening so quick. Uh, another contributing factor to all this, Mark Sayers writes, the problems of the era are intensifying at the precise moment the era is passing. And I put together this little diagram for you all to kind of gain some understanding. So what he's saying is this, we have the passing era, whatever you define that is, however you define that, where there is more certainty. And then we add all those elements of cultural change and uh, so society revolution kind of stuff and pandemics and all this stuff, and, and, and it's created this gray zone. So like we're no longer that, but we're not yet sure what we're becoming. And we're living in this, this gray zone or what we're calling a season uh, uh, of static. Obviously with all this change and no definition as to why we're changing or where we're going, we are responding as a society. 
And the response that's going on all around us, I'm not saying you people, I'm saying the other parts of society, the response of societies have been, not been good. Because what's happened is there's, we've become this anxious global village. And so now we are being characterized in this static season with our anxiety, fear, and anger. Now, th- what that means is this is everybody. Even those who don't necessarily have a tendency toward worry, you're, you're, you find yourself worrying today. Are we safe? Are we going to be okay? You know, you know <laughs> the brazen went, no. You know, all these anxiety we have and all this fear, that we add fear to it. Like we're saying, maybe we should start carrying a gun or, or you know, or whatever. My dad is 80 years old. Almost. He's 80 in March. I was with him this week. We had a quick trip to Ohio. And he's trying to get the back seat of his, I don't know why I'm saying this. He's trying to get the back seat of his car. And he's got like a Yukon or something. Trying to get the back seat up and he couldn't get it up. And I said, Dad, I'll try to help. I'll help. I'll help. So I went back and I said, Dad, here's the problem. And I pulled a machete out from underneath the back. I said, Dad, you're 79 years old. If someone confronts you in your car. Do you plan on getting out of the car and walking to the back of the car, opening the hatch and pulling a machete out from the third row seat? Is that your plan? My point for all of that, and please, Lord, don't let dad be watching this particular one. (laughs) My point is, even those of us that don't necessarily resonate with fear, it's a fear-producing time. How about anger? Anybody like found it that they don't even have, they don't normally struggle with road rage, but now you go to Walmart parking lot and want to kill everybody? I mean, do you find yourself that way? Well, of course, we're all feeling it. It's in our homes now. It's all around us, and people are just freaking out. Why? It's a static season. There's no definition. We don't know where we're going. And so we're all sort of, any business owner you have, it. if you own a business, tell me where your business is going. You're like, man, ah, there's so many variables. It's hitting our homes. It's hitting our relationships, families, and friends. Man, I read a disturbing one in my profession this week. Uh, Barna just did some, released some research that in this static season, ready for this, 47% of pastors surveyed said they thought about quitting since pandemic. 47%. See, it's hitting all of us in this static season of like, where are we going? What are we doing? It's this season of waiting, season of leaving something, but we're not sure where we're going as a society. Now, what's really encouraging to me as we head into this culture moment is Scripture says a lot, actually, about this moment. It has a lot to say about what's going on. Think about Adam and Eve. Do you remember when they had to leave the garden and prepare for what was outside the garden? Static season. Or how about this, Abraham, leave your home in the Ur of Chaldees and and go somewhere. Where? I'm not going to tell you. Static season, static season. How about Moses leading the people out of Israel? Where? Into the wilderness for how long? 40 years and then into the promised land. Static season. The exiles of the Old Testament, they saw God's people have to leave their homes, live in another place, and then be able to return. Static season. Long-awaited Messiah. Static season. Then Bethlehem happens. Jesus dies on the cross. Three days. Static season. We're in the gray zone. The old era is gone. We have a new era coming, but we're not sure what it looks like. Static season. Three days later, up from the grave he arose. We're actually living in a static season now. We're people of the word. We have God's revelation in in his written scripture. 
We have the Christ dying on the cross for our sins. We have forgiveness. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit who abides in us. And we're waiting for the triumphant return. We're in a static season. All this to say, the scriptures actually have a great deal to talk about this cultural moment that all of us find ourselves in and the static moment of our personal lives or lives of our families or lives of people we do life with. And so last week, we looked at this brand new church called Thessalonica. It was the original Project 20. And it was experiencing this season of static Paul planted this church over three Sabbaths. Uh, that could be three weeks or three months. Commentators differ on that. But regardless, he planted it fast. Then he's run out of town, Paul is. So here are these brand new converts from paganism. It wasn't like they just changed one flavor of faith to another flavor. You know, it's not like they went from Baptist to Presbyterian. They had no faith. They were pagans. And they decided to follow this guy called the way and then the guy who's teaching their church left. So now we have Roman oppression, Jewish religious oppression, and the way, and this group of young believers smack dab in the middle. You talk about a season of static, these brand new converts. And so Paul writes them this letter, and we actually have these letters in our scripture. And he provides these points of clarity of what to cling to in seasons of static and if we can identify what these things are, maybe we'll let go of the fear and the anger and the anxiety. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we can identify something healthier to grab hold of, we can let this other stuff go. Last week, Paul revealed to us the most powerful of motives for any person or group living in a static season. We discovered it in this verse. Our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And there, my friends, is the first unshakable reality, build a life on kind of reality in static times, and it's this. The gospel message has power. It has power. And we're living in the modern church like somebody pulled the plug. The gospel message has the power to transform any situation, any given situation. The gospel message has that kind of power. And many in the modern church have truly never experienced the true power of the gospel. Or maybe we did when we met Jesus. And we found ourselves washed as white as snow, you know. But then we never lived in any kind of power after that. And as a result... We're reflecting anxiety, fear, and anger. And we got machetes buried in the third row seat behind the car. I don't want you to think, you know, dad's weird. He had a need for that machete. Apparently he saw some weeds by his driveway and he was going to whack them down with the machete, but he forgot. <clears throat> We're going to have a family meeting. <laughs> what in the world is this gospel power thing? What is that? What does that even mean, this gospel power? Well, let me tell you what it is. And then the gospel is the good news of what God has done through the person work of Jesus Christ. That's important. So when we say gospel, it actually is euangelion. It means good news. But it's the good news of what Jesus Christ or what God has done through the person of Jesus. So you can read about it in in your scripture, but don't miss the second part, especially what he accomplished through his death, burial, 
and resurrection. What Paul is saying is that message has the power to take a life that's headed this way. And that message has the power to turn it this way. And if the message has the power to do that in the individual's life, what if just two of us do it? Or maybe three of us? What if you guys want to do it? Do you see? Eventually what happens is an entire community, maybe even an entire country could be headed one way, and then all of a sudden we start heading. That's the power of the gospel, to transform lives. And that, my friends, is the first unbelievable reality of this whole thing. So this past week, we've been trying to live in this power by speaking the gospel over things. That's what I asked you to do uh, this past week, over things that cause us to be anxious or fearful or angry. Speak the gospel over it, the power of the gospel. What do you mean? Who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what power that would have for every given situation. So I received uh, this email from a friend of ours. So they, they watch in Haiti. <laughs> and uh, it was so neat to get the email. He said, hey, Pastor, I just want to let you know, um, I, I heard the message this week. We watch every Sunday. And by the way, if you're here, uh, welcome. Glad you guys are watching. And, and he said a coworker he had an email to send that was causing him some anxiety. Anybody relate to that one? Yeah, me neither. And so um, he was unsure of what the response might be, right? He's like, I got to send, but I don't know if I want to. It's this static moment. We've all experienced it. So he said, Tom, I just want you to know, I prayed the gospel over it before I sent it. And he said, the message was received with such warmth and acceptance. I know that doesn't always work that way, but it did in this, this scenario. He prayed the gospel. See, the gospel, that message is our motivation for everything. And nothing changes that. It doesn't matter if we're in a static time. It doesn't matter if we're in a clearly defined time. The gospel message doesn't change. That's your motive for those of us who believe. But then Paul continues to write his letter to this young church. And now that he said, here's your motive, the gospel, the power of the gospel, he now turns it attention to how do we apply butter to bread? How do we take our motivation and actually live that out in a static season. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to answer in this next chapter. Paul continues the letter. He's given the motivation, the power of the gospel. Now he turns attention to the method. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Pause. Somebody needs to talk to Paul about what failure means. Come on, it's, it's okay. God's, the dude was run out of town by an angry mob after three, three weeks. Not only that, he was run out of town, and the people he was staying with were then arrested. Paul was run out of town by a hired mob. You remember the King James Version of that, right? The King James Version for hired mob, if you look it up, lewd fellows of the baser sorts. It's, an, it's, it's like, we just say creeps. You know, that, that's, they were hired. And the, and the people he was standing with were, was arrested. Doesn't that seem like a failure to you? I mean, come on. He, the people was arrested. And it wasn't his first failure. He mentions Philippi. Do y'all remember what happened at Philippi? Let, let me remind you. I'll show it to you. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And this lady would follow Paul and Silas around whenever they were trying to preach. And every time they start to preach, she'd start hollering. And she was hollering like good things, but she was still hollering. And, you know, we work hard for these messages. So, 
so hard for the message. <laughs> okay, anyway, <clears throat> we work hard for these. So they, every time they preach, you know, they had this moment like she'd be like, these guys are from the Son of God. They understand God. I mean, she would holler this stuff out all the time, and it went on for days. Then this happened. She kept up for men, this kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so what? There's nothing spiritual happening here. He's had it up to here. That's what's going on. Just for really, read it for yourself. He's had it up to here that he turned around, said the spirit in the name of Jesus, that kind of thing, you know, right? In the, in the name of Jesus Christ, come up on out of there. And at the moment, the spirit left her. That's what happened. This was deliverance out of frustration. So all you young parents, you got something to pray about this week. <laughs> All you parents of adults, never mind. Anyway, never mind, you, you, you get it. The people who owned the slave girl were, were enraged because their meal ticket was now gone. So the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, all they had done was preach, deliver this evil spirit from this woman, and now this is what people re respond, fear anger, anxiety, ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. Friends, it is from this experience that Paul goes and plants a church in Thessalonica. You talk about a season of static. You talk about a season where one era had passed, he had no idea what was coming tomorrow. You talk about a season where fear, anxiety, and, and anger could rule the day in the man's life. Could we all agree this is that season? Fear? And that's not even this kind of fear. It's not like, man, I'm, you see what they might post on Facebook? And it wasn't that fear. No, it's fear like he's got welts and ripped flesh on his back. Fear. Do you think Paul had any anger at all related to that? You better believe he did. He was beaten unfairly. Paul's ministering from the context of an evil presence, physical harm, imprisonment, and being surrounded by mobs. Paul came from the shadow of that context to share a vitally important, worth risking a life for kind of truth. What could be so vitally important that Paul would write to the folks and say, y'all remember, we were there, it wasn't a failure. Remember what happened in Philippi? What would he risk it all to share? Chapter 2, Paul explains. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. If you get time to read this chapter today, look at all the family references in this passage. It's, it's uncanny that Paul wants to be very certain this is in the context of familial relationships. Gentle among you could be translated kindness. Mother caring for her little children. Some of the translations say a nursing mother. Paul is communicating to this young church, living in a static season where anger and fear and anxiety rule the day. Paul is communicating that, hey, we didn't come with anger, fear, and anxiety. We came with gentleness, like a nursing mother of her baby. Verse 11, he makes another family comparison. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. 
not as a father deals with someone else's children, deals with his own children. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. What is Paul trying to communicate to this church in this season of static? What's he trying to say in this season of uncertainty, fear, and anxiety? What's his point? Verse 8. We loved you so much. Nursing mother, kindness, like a gentle father. We loved you so much that we were delighted Still has the robe sticking to the blood drying on his back, people. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, for which I was thrown into prison and beaten for, not only that, but our lives as well. Why? Because you, you people, had become so dear to us. And there it is. Look at it. What would you preach if you were preaching this passage? Because there it is. See, the gospel always demands a response. Always. It was love that motivated the birth of the gospel through Jesus Christ, a father's love for a lost and broken world. And it is love that motivates the followers of Jesus. Don't miss it in static seasons. And there is the method. The gospel is fueled by love. Now, I'm not talking about love like because we like love people that are like us. I'm not talking about how we love our mamas and love our daddies and love our children. I'm talking about how love of the gospel so permeates us that in an age where anger, fear, and anxiety are running the headlines, there is a community of people who live with such a deep, extravagant love that it makes zero sense. The reputation of anybody that claims to be the body of Christ is extravagant, exorbitant love. I would suggest the season of static in our culture or in our personal lives is actually distracting us from the loving heart of God. I think that's what's happening on a spiritual plane. These two eras, one passing, one forming, living in this gray zone has resulted in me and you being distracted but by our anxiety, our fear, and our anger. And we're distracted from the loving heart of God, and I fear it's prohibiting us from sharing the loving heart of God with a culture that is anxious, fearful, and angry. How's it prohibiting us? I'll tell you why. We're withdrawing. We're shutting down. We're staying home. We're no longer entering into difficult scenarios. We're trying to avoid them. We're no longer engaging in relationships. We're trying to avoid them. Well, what if we get somebody in there and they voted for you-know-who? What if we get someone in there and they think sexuality is different than I do? There's two emails right there. 
Do you see, friends, the church? Doctrine's important. I studied doctrine. I get doctrine. I value doctrine. But it is not the most important. You know what the most important is? Love. Not your kind of love or my kind. I'm talking about a love that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ that we just splash on everybody. My image on this is a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew. And you hold your finger over the end of it. And you shake it really good like you were cheering for Clemson, Tennessee. And you just shake it and shake. Okay, there's the third email. There's the third email. I know, I know, I know. And you shake this thing up and you got this love that's blowing up inside you so you can't hold it anymore. It's like, you know, I think that's gospel love. It just, you can't help it. It's not like you try to be like all fake and plastic. Like, oh, man, sorry you're going through that. That must be very, don't do that. That's creepy. Just love them. Love them. But what if they did? Who cares? Love them. Just love them. See, we have turned so inward. Listen, we've turned so inward, we have completely forgotten the commission is actually to go outward. What if this cultural day is being used by the most evil of personalities to paralyze the church? And we're all buying it. The gospel, the gospel always goes outward. We are too defensive and afraid to love the defensive and afraid. I wonder if the mob or the violence or the uncertainty, the anger has caused us all to take our eyes off of our loving Heavenly Father. I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about me and you. What if it's distracted us? What if we've actually become more like the culture instead of shaping the culture to be more like Christ? What if we become so inward focused, we no longer have a heart for the lost and broken world? What if when we see lost and broken people, all we can think about is how wrong they are, how broken they are, and try to put the pieces back together into their life for how they ended up there? What if we're doing that instead of thinking, how in the world can I shake some Jesus love up on this person in a culture that's showing them fear, anxiety, and worry? See, we all understand the world's broken and lost. Everybody in the room would agree with that. We all get that. But what we may not understand is the church is broken as well. And if we are not careful, we will lose our way in a static season. Anybody grow up in a Sunday school classroom that had a picture of Jesus standing outside a creepy dark door? I'm taken by the fearful laughter that you understand exactly what I'm saying. If you have never seen that, consider yourself blessed. <laughs> and like we tell the story of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, right? And we always say, oh, that's for... People that don't know Jesus, to open the door, let them into your heart. That would be so great. Everybody sing just as I am. It's going to be beautiful. Except the context of that verse isn't for lost people. It's actually for church people. 
The verse was actually written to a church, you remember. Revelation 3, church of Laodicea. Here I am, he's saying to church people. I'm standing at the door and knocking church people. If any church people hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and eat with him. He with me. I will have an intimate relationship with church people, the church people living in Laodicea. Doesn't that just kind of chape you a little bit? What? What do you mean you're standing at my door knocking? Why is he standing at the door of my heart? Your heart. We're, we're believers. Why is he standing there knocking? I mean, we're the fellowship of the redeemed, dead gummit. We are the chosen ones. We're the A students. We, we're God's favorite. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're missing God's perspective on it all. Maybe we actually have something to learn from Paul about our own hearts. Maybe Jesus gave those words to the church at Laodicea because he wanted the church to understand something about us, about who we are, about our ability and inability to love, about how we can live in such fear that we will keep the door closed and we won't let anybody or anyone in because of our fear, anxiety, and anger. I've been living in Richard Foster these days. I've gone back and read books I've read of his. I found new books, and I've just been on this rabbit trail, just reading all these books about Richard Foster. He's sort of been my pastor lately, and I've been immersing myself in his writing. And I, I have a lengthy passage that I want to share with you. And, and I think when you hear it, you'll understand why I couldn't give you an abbreviated version. So if you want to, you can just kind of chill with me just for a second. It's from the book uh, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home by Richard Foster. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. And he is inviting you and me to come home. To come home to where we belong. To come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long, we have been in a far country, a country of noise and frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home, home to serenity and peace and joy, home to friendship and fellowship and openness, home to intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. We don't need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart where he can put on old slippers and share freely. He invites us into the kitchen of his friendship where chatter and batter mix in good fun. He invites us into the dining room of his strength where we can feast to our heart's delight. He invites us into the study of his wisdom where we can learn and grow and stretch and ask all the questions we want. He invites us into the workshop of his creativity where we can be co-laborers with him 
working together to determine the outcomes of events. He invites us into the bedroom of his rest where new peace is found and where we can be naked and vulnerable and free. It's also the place of deepest intimacy where we know and are known to the fullest. The Father's heart is open wide. You too are welcome to come higher up and deeper in. If the key is prayer, the door is Jesus Christ. How good of God to provide us a way into his heart. He knows that we are stiff-necked and hard-hearted, so he has provided a means of entrance. Jesus, the Christ, he lived a perfect life and he died in our place and rose victorious over all the dark powers so that we might live through him. That is wonderfully good news. No longer do we have to stand outside, barred from the nearness of God by our rebellion. We may now enter through the door of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Friends, this gospel is a love that we can receive and partake of as believers. It isn't as the world does this kind of love. It's not the same. It's a love that is so dominant it should characterize our fellowship. It's a love that is so extravagant that it will never make sense. It is a generous love, a self-sacrificing love, a benefit of the doubt, grace-filled, mercy-outpouring kind of love, a stand-with-you kind of love, a full-on forgiveness kind of love. It's a love that provides the method for how we can live, how we operate in a static season. You don't turn it on and you don't turn it off. It just always is. It's love. This love isn't just for us. It's to be given out through us. This isn't just our love. This is a love for everyone. Yes, even the one that's ticked you off, even the one that's getting on your last nerve. And Paul was so connected to the love received from the gospel that it flavored his relationships with others. The love was so extravagant in him that when he got beaten to a pulp, all he could think about was starting another community of love. It didn't discourage him. He didn't bail. He didn't say, oh, this is wrong with them. This is wrong. No. That's the way he did life. Look at, look at how the chapter ends. For this is what is our hope, our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. What's our hope? It's you people, he says. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What kind of love? 
What is our hope? It's, it's you. It's you people. How would my life be different if exorbitant love was my lens toward everyone I came in contact with? Yeah, but Tom, you don't know what they did. I get it and I can relate to it, but it's not relevant to the context of the gospel. You don't know what they said. I get it. You don't know what, I get it. Tom, how do you, let me ask you. Do a people who have offended and violated the very one who died for them out of love for them have a right to be choosy with who they love? We don't. What if we gave up our need to be right, our need to be heard, our need to defend? What if we gave that up this week? And all we tried to make sure that was communicated this week was, you're our glory and joy. Wouldn't that be weird? Get pulled over this week for speeding. You're my glory and joy. (laughs) And then you find out the police officer goes here too. And you're my glory and joy. Here's your ticket. (laughs) Years ago, I heard writer and counselor Larry Crabb explain how he does this. And he says that when he interacts with people, he no longer tries to fix them. He no longer tries to go all counselor mode and share his knowledge. He said, I just try to think, what does this person need that God has given me that I can share? And I sort of developed this little prayer. And on my best days, I do this. And um, it's basically this. It's Jesus, take what is of you in me that this person needs and give it to them. Because I realized that I couldn't fix everybody. I went into ministry thinking I could. (laughs) And then give to me whatever is of you in them. Now, I know it sounds like Dr. Seuss a little bit, so, you know, that's welcome to Tom's mind. Um, But I thought maybe if we read it out loud, it might help all of us grasp it a little bit. So would you be willing to do that with me? So, Jesus, take what is of you and me that this person needs and give it to him. And give to me what is you in them. Want to try it this week? Let's give it a whirl. Lord, you're good to us, and we love you. Lord, I just, I just say I'm sorry. I think maybe in the live community, we just want to say we're sorry. We, we want to be known for our love, our make-no-sense kind of love, our love that is freely given because it was freely received. We want to reach out and shine the, your love. We don't want to reflect the fear, anger, and anxiety of the world. We want to rest peacefully in your love for us. And that allows us to love, well, everybody. So, Lord, help us to lay aside our focus on differences, our hunger for the latest morsel, our wanting to be seen a certain way. And every conversation, you are our hope and joy. I want to be loved like that. I want to love like that. In your name we ask. Amen.